Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, November 21st, 2014. See if we can land. Oh, sorry, take the ship into dock for the week without sinking it. <laughs> Mixing metaphors. My apologies. Brain is starting to not function the way it used to when I was a young man. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which. Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you stop, open up your Bible. There's a thought. Uh, Open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God to see if what they're telling us is the truth or if they are deceived or being or deceiving or both. I think it can kind of go that way. I mean... Uh, yeah, it's just so much bad theology out there and so many people who call themselves Christians, you know, who claim that they believe in Jesus, you know, who they don't care a wink about what God's word says or the fact that their favorite pastor, preacher, conference speaker, author doesn't actually rightly handle God's word. And so uh, we actually have paid attention to the uh, you know kind of finer print uh, there in the scriptures and you know what the scriptures say it say that uh, pastors are only to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine uh, and uh, rebuke those who contradict it it's kind of simple concept and uh, the problem part of the problem is is that the culture we live in the milieu that we find ourselves swimming in uh, yeah you know exclusive truth claims in a postmodern world they just seem so arrogant so you know insensitive so intolerant and so in the name of tolerance we're not going to tolerate anybody who dares to say that there is an exclusive truth claim. Notice the uh, weird double standard. That's how that works. Uh, You'll find uh, that um, the most intolerant people on the planet are the ones out there calling for tolerance because the one thing they won't tolerate (laughs) is that view that says, no, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> this doesn't fly too well in today's society. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. It's Friday afternoon, no theme. No, 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 no theme today. It's it's what's out there that we're going to take a look at. We're going <laughs> to, I find myself doing this on Fridays. I, I don't know why that is. We're going to do a Terry Savelle Foy update. 
And uh, we're going <laughs> to listen to Terry Savelle Foy teach us the spiritual principle of a story regarding uh, a skunk. Yeah, it's the name of the video is Terry and the Skunk. And uh, and so, uh, we'll uh, we'll be doing that to begin with. We're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to do a money grubbing televangelist update. Rod Parsley is uh, pairing up with Benny Hinn. Oh yeah, and uh, and so they're starting to you know whip up the uh, the masses, get them into a frenzy, so that people will come to Columbus, Ohio, and fork over huge amounts of cash. And uh, and so in preparation for the upcoming uh, sheep fleecing event, uh, you know, <laughs> that's the best way to put it. Rod Parsley uh, is uh, twisting God's word and teaching about the seven places where Jesus bled for you and what that supposedly means. This is a, a standard false teaching used by televangelists uh, to uh, basically you know, fleece the flock. But, uh, of course, Rod Parsley, he's always looking for any occasion he can to fleece the flock, and he... It teaches for shameful gain the things he ought not to teach. This is how Scripture describes it. And uh, somewhere in there we'll take a break, and then uh, we'll take a listen to uh, <clears throat> the the latest Joel Osteen sermon. Yeah, I don't know what to, what to call it. But then in hour number two, we're going to end the week off with some good sermons uh, regarding the end of the world. And uh, <clears throat> if you're, you know, listen, uh, I'm a confessional Lutheran, confessional Lutheran pastor, and I follow the lectionary, and that means three weeks a year as we wind down the church year in preparation for the new church year, which begins with the season of Advent. Uh, you focus on passages regarding Christ's return in judgment to judge the living and the dead, and you preach on those texts. And uh, there is a particular parable that so many people mess up, mess up. That would be the parable of the talents. If you don't rightly understand the difference between law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, forgiveness of sins, and know how to rightly divide God's word uh, in law and gospel, then you are going to mess up the parable of the talents just big time, big time. If you think it's about your ability to bunk, dunk, bunk, dunk a basketball, uh, no, that's not what the parable of the talents is. If you think the parable of the talents is about how you manage your money here on earth, no, that is not what that parable is about. So uh, what we're going to do, we're going to end with three sermons today. Two of them are about the parable of the talents, but uh, one of them is regarding the end of the world. So we're going to, uh, and when it's supposed to show up. So, you know, kind of reinforce this idea regarding the fact that the, the Bible doesn't give us any eschatological codes to crack. So we'll begin with a Brent Kuhlman sermon, uh, and he's uh, preaching on First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Uh, you'll notice that uh, this, the sermon, I, well, one of my sermons earlier this week that I posted, same text. Um, and then we're going to listen to two sermons, two sermons on the parable of the talents. One from Reverend Mark Bestial and the other from Pastor Jeremy Rohde at uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. That's how we're going to end the program. And my hope is with the good sermons, uh, especially the two on the talents, is that it will challenge you, especially if you have been subjected to just really awful, uh, bad sermons on uh, the parable of the talents. If you don't understand law and gospel correctly, you're going to mess this up. And uh, it's really easy to do, and this has to do with what's called the opinio legis. We have the, uh, the opinion of the law written on our hearts. And if you think that, <laughs> that uh, somehow you're saved by your you know, how well you manage your talents, 
you know, and that has to do with money or your ability to dunk a basketball or sing, you know, opera or dance ballet or something. Yeah, well, then that's salvation by works, and you've completely missed the whole point. And by the way, uh, the 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 parable talking about the talents. That's the metaphor. The reality points to something different. So hopefully uh, Jeremy Rohde and Mark Bestial will be able to clear things up for you all out there if you've uh, been exposed to bad talent, uh, parable talent, parable of the talents preaching. Yeah, that's right, right way to put it. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, and I hope that you enjoy it. But uh, since we're starting off with a Terry Savelle Foy update, that requires us to do, you know, this. Hiya, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. I'm a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. Black and plastic. It's fantastic. You can brush my hair. I'll dress me everywhere. Imagination. Life is your creation. Barbie, let's go party. Enough of that. Okay, <laughs> that's our Terry Savelle Foy update. Music. So what we're going to be listening to is Terry Savelle Foy uh, from her YouTube video blog channel. And the name of the video we're going to be listening to is Terry and the Skunk. And uh, this is all about, well, fear. Fear. Uh, that's kind of the theme that she's talking about here. And what you're going to hear from Terry Savelle Foy is kind of like the standard evangelical teaching regarding fear. Fascinating teaching, but is it really what Scripture teaches? Well, let's tune in to Terry Savelle Foy and see what she has to say. Again, here's Terry and the Skunk. Here we go. I want to thank you for watching this week. You know, I was just reading through some more testimonies, which I love to do. And I wanted to share something with you really quick from uh, someone named Sky, And it says that she just finished my book, Untangle. And she says it was amazing. She said, I now feel I can get through anything and do what God's called me to do. She said, I have a horrible way of talking to myself, and it's helping me so much to change that. That's so important, the way you talk to yourself. That affects your self-esteem, your self-image, everything. She said, my parents got divorced a couple years ago, and that sent me into deep depression and suicidal thoughts. This book has helped me go back to the place where God was healing and continuing to heal me. I want to thank you so much for writing books and for the icing meeting. She says, I've been to two or three, and each time I... Yeah, icing. She keeps talking. Isn't icing like a penalty in hockey? I'm confused. Go. I get a new vision for my life. Thank you so much. Well, that melts my heart, and it makes me so happy to hear that she's receiving the vision, the dreams that God's given her. The Bible clearly tells us... Receiving the vision and the dreams that God is giving her. Yeah, see, that's kind of the the assumption here that uh, basically sends us off in the wrong direction. You've got the wrong assumption. You got the wrong doctrine. Yeah, it's you, pretty much you can't build Christ, sound Christian doctrine on a faulty foundation. I mean, the foundation is kind of off here, like really off. You know, you think Christianity is all about receiving dreams and visions from God for your life? Yeah, no. It, it isn't, and this is not taught in Scripture. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but blessed is the one who keeps the Torah, the written word of God, the law. That's that's the other half. Why is it these folks only quote half of a verse 
read the rest of that proverb and you'll see that it's talking about the vision that we need is the written word of God. It is vital, it is crucial to your life that you have a dream, a goal, something getting you up in the morning, something you need to pursue and fulfill. You know, God's the creator and he didn't create you for no reason. He created you for a purpose. Now you have an enemy named Satan. Mm -hmm. So God created you for a purpose and now you've got an enemy, Satan. And what's his job to do? Oh, he's supposed to keep you from your purpose. Now, if the purpose we're talking about here is eternal life, well, maybe we can get there. Um, you know, you you, you kind of shoot beyond this temporal world here. Um, you know, because you know, the question is, as a Christian, what is God's will for me? Well, you know, you take a look at the Ten Commandments, you know, kind of figure that out. And then ask yourself this question, what vocations are you in? You know, the Fourth Commandment, honor your father and mother. Well, vocation of father and mother is a very important one. Vocation of son or daughter, that's an important vocation. Vocation of husband and wife. These are all God-ordained vocations that we find ourselves in. And uh, the neighbors that God calls us to love and to serve are, you know, first and foremost, those that we come in contact with within our vocation. So, you love and serve your wife if you are a husband. You love and serve your children if you are a father or mother. And you kind of get what I'm talking about there. And then, and then you know, there's always that passage about slaves obeying your masters. And uh, thankfully, we do not live in a, in a nation where slavery exists anymore. Uh, but we could talk about the relationship of Christians to their employers. And so the idea is we do all of our work unto the Lord and so these are the things that God has called us to do. But you'll notice that throughout life, your vocations change. You start off as vocation of child, and then you you, you become a, a student. So you have vocation of child and student. And then you you know maybe you graduate, you get married, and then you become a, a mother or father or or, or um, you know husband, wife. And so then you find yourself in those vocations. And then you know and then you know how many of us have stayed in the same career our whole life. I mean, you know, you, some, a lot, you know, it's kind of a standard career path for people nowadays is, you know, when you're a teenager, you're working fast food. Uh, you, you, you maybe get a job at a restaurant as a waiter or waitress. Uh, then, you know, after you graduate, you start off, you know, in a low level position in a corporation and, and you know, you, you find, you know, there's, or you, maybe you're an entrepreneur and you start your own business, but you, you kind of get what I'm saying is, is that, it's really difficult looking across somebody's life to say, oh, that was their one and only God-ordained dream, vision, purpose thingy. No. <laughs> you know, the question is, okay, today, what vocation are you in? This is what God wants you to do. And that doesn't mean that God's not going to change your vocations or give you opportunities to serve your neighbor in other capacities. But, I mean, this idea that, oh, there's this grand vision, and then Satan's job. He's supposed to come along and go, I'm going to keep you from achieving and experiencing your God-given dream or vision. You know, no, uh, <laughs> Satan is a liar and a murderer, and his big deal is, is he, he doesn't want you actually um, hearing the gospel, trusting in Christ and being saved and having eternal life in Jesus. Cause Satan knows that his time is short. So with this short amount of time, do you really think that Satan's going to sit there and block people from, you know, visions or whatever? No, I mean, the, <laughs> that's really not his gig and what he's all about, but we continue. Who also has a plan and purpose for your life. John 10, 10 tells us that plan. The thief comes only 
to kill, steal, and destroy your life. He is out of context. Looking for any way he can to destroy your life. One of the ways that he will stop you from stepping out into those visions and dreams like Sky got for her life is through fear. He loves to intimidate us with fear. Fear, huh? In fact, I was I wrote a letter recently about fear. And I wrote in there, wouldn't it be sad to get to heaven and see what all you could have been, could have done, and could have had, but you let fear stop you? Um, let me see if I got this straight. You're actually going to get to heaven, see Jesus face to face, hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he's going to say, oh, you know, you really blew it. I mean, here, I, you know, you were going to be the person that was going to like change the whole world. Uh, but no, you let fear stop you. Oh, where in Scripture does it talk like that? In fact, Henry Ford made this statement. He said, one of the greatest discoveries a man makes, one of his great surprises is to find he can do what he was afraid he couldn't do. I don't know what that means to you. Well, it means to me that Henry Ford is not found in the Bible. That's what that means to me. I know what it's meant in my life. And I don't want you to allow fear, or I should just say Satan, to stop you from stepping out into this new thing God wants you to do. Whatever it is, a fear that you'll never get. Stepping out into this new thing that God wants you to do. Talk about creating dissatisfaction in the thing, the, the work that God has placed in front of you to do. And the ways in which God wants you to love and serve your neighbor. And these are all biblical. Uh, good husband, good wife, father, mother, you know, employee. You know, you're breathing right now you, and you're in vocations. Love and serve your neighbors to the glory of Christ. And, uh, and don't, and don't you know, think that you've got to be chasing after some new grand dream or vision or whatever. Thank the Lord for your daily bread and for the opportunities he's given you to serve today. Out of debt, a fear that you will never succeed, you'll never get over that relationship, you'll never lose weight, you'll never be successful. Whatever it is, do not let Satan use fear to stop you. It's amazing how Satan works. In fact, when I was little, I had fear in so many different areas of my life. In fact, one of the first scriptures I remember memorizing, my dad taught me this, was Second Timothy 1.7. Of course, I still have it memorized today. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. There's one translation that actually says, for a sound mind, self-discipline. But, you know, I even have that scripture hanging in my bathroom because I love it so much. God is not the one who gave you that spirit of fear. You should realize that if you have fear in your life, that's a result of listening to Satan's lies more than God's truth. Yeah, talking about Satan's lies, um, you know, taking God's word out of out of context is uh, Satan's game, actually. Uh, it started all the way back in the garden. Did, did God really say you should not eat of any tree? Yeah, that's uh, Satan taking God's word out of context and twisting it. Um, yeah, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 7 starts with the word for. For God gave us a spirit. Now, don't you think that if it begins with the word for, and you'll notice it's not capitalized, that uh, what we're dealing with here is uh, a partial thought? Maybe we should figure out what uh, God the Holy Spirit had the Apostle Paul write for us there in Second Timothy. <clears throat> we'll begin with verse 1. Context, context, context. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the, li of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I am remind, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Ah, notice here. So fan the gift of, you know, that he God gave him, the gift to preach and to teach. Um, fan that into flames. And he says, because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and self-control. Therefore, okay, because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, therefore do what? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted in you. So this is not some abstract, you know, just don't be afraid. You know, oh, don't be afraid to, don't let Satan tell you, you know, Oh, Timothy, you, you, you've put on a few pounds, but fear not. Don't, don't let Satan tell you, oh, I'll, you'll never lose those pounds. No. The fear he's talking about is the fear of preaching Christ because of the, you know, don't be ashamed of the testimony about Jesus. That's what that is about. You know, when, I, when my daughter was little and she was still in her crib, you know, in her, her little baby bed and... We had one of those baby monitors. I taught Cassidy, you know, I would teach her, God didn't give you a spirit of fear. God didn't give you a spirit of fear. And I remember I was in my bedroom one day and her little monitor was on. Back then she spoke in third person like Elmo, you know, like Elmo hungry, (laughs) stuff like that. And I'm in my bedroom and all of a sudden I hear her going, Cassie don't have spirit of fear. Cassie don't have spirit of fear. I thought that was the cutest thing. But you know what? That's one of the most powerful things you can do when fear tries to invade your mind is speak the word of God out of your mouth. That is just like slapping the devil in the face. And I don't know about you, but I find great pleasure in doing that. Every time you speak a faith-filled scripture out of your mouth, you have just shoved it in the devil's face. Mm -hmm. Every time you speak a faith-filled scripture. Yeah, um, boy, yeah, word of faith talk there. So my little two-year-old, three-year-old daughter didn't even realize that's what she was doing. But let me just tell you, I heard years ago, there's an acronym for the word fear, and it means false evidence appearing real. Mm, False evidence appearing real. That's the acronym. It's not exactly how the Bible defines fear, phobos. You know, it's fear, but okay. So this is the standard teaching. Ah, fear is false evidence appearing real. See, Satan's telling you, you can never do this. You'll never achieve that. You can't have your dream. And 
Yeah, notice the context here. Now notice the twisting of the definition of fear. And what's the example that she's going to give us regarding this false evidence appearing real? Is it going to be a biblical text, a Bible passage that shows us that fear is defined as false evidence as appearing real? Well, no. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a personal story about a skunk. Yeah, here we go. False evidence appearing real. For example... This was about, I don't know, a year or two ago. I was out walking in my neighborhood, and I used to like to walk, you know, at 5 in the morning. Now I like to go to the gym, but I used to walk at 5 in the morning. It's pitch dark outside. I got a little creeped out because there's so many animals out there. And so, anyway, I'm out walking, you know, it's dark, and that's just my prayer time, you know. Well, these ladies that like to walk at the same time, I'd see them every morning. They'd say, good morning, Terry, you know. And one morning they told me, they said, Terry, don't go up by the gate. They said, there's a skunk up there, and we've seen him every morning. I was like, you're kidding, because I love to go up there by the gate. So they told me that, and so I avoided walking the path I wanted to walk. Well, this went on morning after morning. They said, Terry, the skunk's there. Don't go that way. So I was like, gosh, this really stinks, <laughs> literally. But I can't walk the path I want to walk. Cause <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this stinks. Yeah. Oh, man. Of this dumb skunk. So one morning I said, That's it. I'm not going to allow this skunk to stop me from taking the path I want to take. And he may not even be there. So I thought, I'm going up by the gate. So I walked up there and I'm getting closer to where they said the skunk was. And sure enough, there's this oval shaped thing with a white stripe all the way down the center. And I'm like, I mean, seriously, like fear came all over me. And I was like, In the name of Jesus, Lord, protect me, Lord, protect me. And I'm hoping so bad he doesn't see me or hear me. And I'm not going to run because that might startle him and he'll spray me. So I'm walking as fast as I can. I drop my cell phone. I have to go back, get the cell phone. It was really creepy to me. Anyway, I'm praying, oh, Jesus, protect me from that skunk. Lord, in the name of Jesus, he will not spray me. And I carry tear gas. So I'm like, buddy, if you spray me, I'm going to spray you right back. <laughs> <laughs> I'd pay money to see that. But I'm walking as fast as I can. I get to my house, you know, I shower and change, and I load up my daughter for school. As we're driving out of our neighborhood to go to school, of course, it's bright by then. You know, it's like 730, so the sun's up. We're driving out of the neighborhood, and I just happen to glance over where that skunk was earlier that morning. Sure enough, there's that oval-shaped thing with the white stripe all the way down the center. <laughs> It was a football. All this time, I'm allowing a football to scare me and to prevent me from taking the path I want to take. False evidence appearing real. I could not believe I allowed a football to scare me. Well, you know, it made me think that's exactly how Satan operates. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. If we're talking about Satan, the twister of God's word, the deceiver, and the one who basically causes us to doubt what God has said and to doubt God's character, well, sure. But Satan's not sitting there going, oh, you'll never lose those 10 pounds. Never. Yeah, yeah you'll, you'll never get through college. That's not what the devil's about. When we allow false evidence appearing real to stop us from taking the path God wants us to take. But you know what's interesting? I would still think that this football was a skunk to this day if I hadn't seen it in the light. It was only because the sun came up that I realized it was really a football. Well, you know, the Bible says the entrance of God's word brings light. Every time you hear the word of God, every time you read the word of God, a light goes off. And what happens when a light goes off? You see things you didn't see when you were in the dark. Wouldn't that be the light going on? 
Yeah, you get the point. Um, I don't know what to do with that, but you kind of get the point. Is is that you know she she really thinks she's ministering to and helping people because she truly believes that you know Christianity, or at least in her ministry opportunity, it's all about helping people find that. God-given dream or purpose that Satan is trying to keep them from achieving. And, oh, wouldn't it be terrible if they got up to heaven and realized all the things they could have been but never were. No, the day of judgment is never described in those terms. False evidence appearing evil, uh, I mean, appearing real, well, that is technically how Satan operates, but the false evidence is the false doctrine, the false teaching, the twisting of God's word that he puts out there as if it really is biblical teaching and biblical doctrine. Uh, all the while, it isn't. And the simple way to find this out, just open up your Bible and read what people are citing. Read it in context, and you'll see, oh, false evidence appearing as real biblical doctrine. And that's what we saw in this video. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at piratechristian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a Rod Parsley update and a Joel Osteen update. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. 
That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve package. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We'll write out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with teachers who are out there focusing you on supposedly receiving some grand vision for your life. It's not what the Bible teaches. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. Yeah, this says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it. To the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, that is a 
great way to support us, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot, truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. All right, moving along. Yeah, time for a money grubbing televangelist update. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. Elder Nero, wanna be a millionaire? Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of loot and whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like he might as want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle, want that tender that is legal and financially substantially any sum I can in vehicle. Want to live in regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. All right, that's uh, Dr. T from The Muppet Show and money, money, money. All right, that's our money-grabbing televangelist update. And truer lyrics could not apply to what it is that we are about to hear. Rod Parsley talking about the seven transformations by the blood. And in it, he's going to start to whip people up into a frenzy in preparation for his upcoming event with Benny Hinn. <laughs> it's Uh, This is just awful is what it is, chock full of false teaching. And this is what the Bible refers to, those who are teaching for shameful gain, the things that they ought not to teach. Parsley is one of the slickest. And, I mean, he fits the standard tele-evangelist template, I mean, perfectly to a T. But here's uh, Rod Parsley to set up this false teaching. Here we go. Saying it over and over and over, 2014, what a very, very, very special time on God Almighty's celestial calendar, where the number 14 signifies to you and me today an open door that God promises no man can close. So the year 2014 is an open door that no man can close. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You believe that? I have a bridge I'd like to sell you in Brooklyn. Now, once you determine with all your heart to walk through that open door, you will in totality grasp who Jesus really is. Now, how in do you how do you walk in totality through that open door? We're well, going to find out. It's going to involve well, you know, you sending in a seed offer. It's what's, that's what it's going to involve. Here's what I mean. You'll be transformed, transformation because of revelation, because I promise you, your God and mine is greater, mightier than any of us have ever imagined him to be. Today, today, your transformation will begin with the sacrifice Jesus of Nazareth made so very long ago for you and for me 
in seven very, very specific locations. Mm -hmm. Oh, what a revelation I have for you today on I bet you do. And how, how much will it cost me again? This is, this is a very expensive revelation, you know. Your breakthrough. I am Rod Parsley, and your transformation is on the way. Oh, oh. I I was hoping, you know, do you have a UPS tracking number for that thing? I, I'm really waiting for my transformation. Oh, wait, I have to pay for it first, don't I? Let's uh, let's continue. Today on your breakthrough. My breakthrough, yes. Now, listen to this. This begins with a commercial for the Worldwide Miracle Healing and Victory Prayer Cloth Service. <laughs> That's right. Victory Prayer Cloth. Yeah, I didn't know that such a thing existed. But uh, at the World Harvest Church in Columbus, Ohio, listen to this with with uh, Rod Parsley and Benny Hinn. Be a part of our Worldwide Miracle Healing and Victory Prayer Cloth service, Sunday, November 23rd, 7 p.m., with Rod Parsley and Benny Hinn, releasing their faith together for your healing. Oh, oh man. I mean... You would think that just Rod Parsley by himself or Benny Hinn by himself, that it would be such a blessing if both, if, you know, if one or the other would just release their faith. But oh, at this event, the two of them together are going to release their faith. It's going to be just like, you know, the Wonder Twins, you know, Wonder Twin power activate form of a Learjet form of a bazillion dollar yacht. Yeah. Uh-huh. Your family, your miracle. Join me at World Harvest, November 23rd, in the evening, Sunday night, for the greatest miracle healing service I've ever had in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> the greatest one I've ever had in Columbus. We know it's going to be the best. Uh-huh. With my dearest, most wonderful friend, Pastor Rock Parsley, Jesus. Yeah, fellow uh, cohort in crime, you know, spiritual crime, that is. Is going to be the saints. The Son of Almighty God will walk into that building and lay His healing, loving hand on you and make you whole. You know, Benny, you're kind of looking a little long in the tooth there. I mean, whoo, yeah, you're aging, dude. I'll see that. Write, call, or go to rodparsley.com. You'd think that a man who can release faith as powerfully as Benny Hinn could, that, you know, he'd be able to, like, you know... Keep himself from getting old. Isn't that one of the effects of the fall, of the fall too, you know? To send your prayer request now and reserve your prayer cloth as a point of contact from our most miracle manifesting service of the year. <laughs> from our most miracle manifesting service of the year. <sighs> yeah, teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. November 23rd, 7 p.m. at World Harvest Church and live at rodparsley.com and a station in your area. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to fast forward so that you can kind of get a, get a feel for what it is that Rod Parsley is doing in this particular teaching. Well, he's talking about the seven places where Jesus supposedly shed his blood. Well, and in, in a sense, Jesus did shed his blood in these different places. And he's going to talk about the significance that uh, you know, that each of these places has. I've heard uh, Paula White use this exact same template 
for, you know, basically raising funds for herself. But we'll pick up in the middle of the teaching somewhere so you can kind of get a feel for what's going on. And and then he'll go into his commercial because what Rod Parsley does oh so well is just grab people's attention and then just suck them into the television and then miraculously make them open up their wallets and send him all kinds of money because that's what he does. So here we go. Next portion of this. Here we go. As Jesus wore that, that crown of thorns, you and I were redeemed. We were returned to the original state of affairs as though the pain and penalty of sin had never happened. It returned you and me, mankind, to the Garden of Eden, if you will, where there had been no sin. A place of abundance, a place of overwhelming blessing, a place where every need was not only met, but such extravagance was around humanity that there was absolutely nothing not supplied by the hand of God. So apparently the crown of thorns um, makes it so that it, the curse of poverty has been broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because Jesus shed his blood when the crown of thorns was pressed into him, that broke the curse of poverty. Now, you know, super-de-duper abundance is like promised to you. But, yeah, you got to exercise your faith first. And otherwise, you know, that crown of thorns bleeding thing, it ain't going to really help you out. I mean, if you're suffering and struggling and po- in the, under the curse of poverty right now, well, there's something very practical that you're going to need to do in order to tap into Jesus' blood here shed when the crown of thorns was pressed into his head. Well, my friend, the curse of poverty was broken when that crown of thorns touched the blood of Jesus' brow. Because of his sacrifice on the beam, you and I, we now have access once again to the limitless blessing, to the provision of God Almighty himself, free from the penalty of sin, free from the penalty of sickness, free from the penalty of poverty and lack. Free from the penalty of poverty and lack, really? Right now, this very moment, an open door stands before you, and you're at a strategic inflection point, a place where a decision must be made. Oh, that 2014 open door that not, no man can close. Right, yeah. So the door is standing open. I want to go through the door. How do I go through the door, Rod? What do I need to do? Will you enter into the fullness that God has provided you right now in this moment of transformation? Uh, I, ho- I hope so. I don't want to miss this opportunity to step into the fullness of transformation. Will you walk through that open door? Uh, show me where the door is. What do I do? Or will you turn away? Oh, I don't want to do that. I want transformation. Please tell me, Rod, save me. How can I go through the door? I know right now you sense the strength and the power of God himself. Uh, No, I'm not feeling nothing, dude. Causing you to say, Pastor Rod, I'm going to walk through that door. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. (laughs) Emotional manipulation like you wouldn't believe. I sense faith rising in your heart. You do? Um, Really? I, I don't feel nothing. 
as you embrace what Jesus has already done. And how do I embrace what Jesus has already done? And enter into the blessing of the Lord. Now, we are quickly, very quickly, approaching the most anointed event of the entire year. Oh, the most anointed event of the entire year? How do I get in on it? Our worldwide miracle healing and victory prayer cloth service. Oh, sounds so holy. Sunday, November 23rd, when millions, and I do mean millions, around the world will join international healing evangelist Pastor Benny Hinn and myself in praying for your greatest needs. Can you imagine that? What an anointing. When Benny Hinn and myself join our hands together. It's just like Peter and Paul come back from the grave to save us. Live that night with millions around the world. Oh, we want to see the full manifestation of God's transformation in your life. Your supernatural turnaround begins with a supernatural turning point. Mm, Okay. And what would be my supernatural turning point for my supernatural whatever to begin? A decision has to be made. I I need to make a decision. What decision do I need to make? And then that decision expressed by an act of faith. For faith without works is dead. Oh, no. What's the work that God wants me to do to prove that I have a faith? The faith for transformation. Then released by the power of a seed directed toward your greatest need. A seed directed towards my greatest need? Is this like a torpedo seed? What are you talking about? Let faith arise in your heart right now. Yeah, I'm not feeling nothing here except for like I'm being conned. As you determine the seed that God has placed in your hand, and let's believe together. Believe together. Let's believe together. God is going to release transformation if you send in that seed. And by that code, that's code talk, by the way, code talk for money. For transformation. Oh, yeah. Seed for transformation. Not just some little blessing. I'm talking about radical, overwhelming, life-altering transformation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, you don't want just a little blessing. I mean, don't send in like a buck or something, you know. That's that. Then you'll just, you know, God will say, ah, bless you after you sneeze or something. But you want transformation. That's going to cost a lot more. For you and your family, in your physical body, in your emotional health, in your financial situation. Let me encourage you right now. Sow your very best seed. Do as Cornelius and Hannah did. Do Cornelius sowed his very best seed. Hannah sowed a seed. Really, when, when did they do that? As Joni and I have done a thousand times over. Mix your praying with your giving. I don't know what your seed should be. $25 seed, a $50 seed wrapped in expectancy. Oh. A $50 seed wrapped in expen- expectancy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to expect for a long time because you think God's blessings can be purchased? Really? I seem to recall that in the book of Acts, there was this magician, Simon, yeah, and uh, he asked to, you know, he offered to pay money for the ability to lay hands on people and for them to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I do recall, I think it was Peter who said to him, may you perish with your money, for you thought that you can buy the gift of God. Something like that in the book of Acts. Something like that, you know. 
$100 seed. Release whatever seed God has directed you to release to mix your praying and your giving for this supernatural night of nights on November the 23rd. And then dial that number on your screen. Yeah, then dial the number on that screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God is directing me to warn people about you and uh, your false doctrine and the fact that you're teaching for shameful gain what you ought not to teach. Yeah, I'm not going to direct not a cent to you and pray that more people hear this podcast so that they will stop sending money to you. You are a charlatan. And sir, if you do not repent, you will have to give an accounting to Christ for every one of these cons, these schemes that you've concocted to fleece Christ's sheep, rob them of their money while selling the miracles of God. God has not given you authority to do such things. In fact, God gives away all of his blessings as a free gift. Moving along. Yep, time for a Joe Osteen update. Sad as I can be. All by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. My shiny teeth that sparkle and beauty to my face. My shiny teeth that glisten just like the Christmas tree. You know they walk a mile just to see me smile. Woo! Shiny Teeth and Me. All right, that's uh, Chip Skylark and uh, Shiny Teeth and Me. Now, what we're going to be listening to is the latest um, sermon. Is that the right way to put it? Uh, Message, um, uh, inspirational uh, fluff uh, with a Bible veneer uh, from uh, Joel Osteen's uh, television program. Uh, it's all about discovering the champion in you, of course. It's called Blessed in the Darkness. Now, have you ever wondered, uh, you know, what does somebody like Joel Osteen do with, like, you know, the fact that people in his um, multi-bazillion dollar complex who show up, you know, in droves there, they experience, you know, some of life's setbacks in some dark places. Well, this will be an inspirational message for sure. Biblical? No. Um, You know. Yeah, will he basically uh, paint their 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 life with uh, marshmallow-covered rainbows? Yes, but we won't be hearing sound doctrine from Joel Osteen yet again. Yeah, every week he has the opportunity to actually up, open up his Bible and to preach it, like he says he's going to do. Uh, but he never really gets around to it now, does he? Here's uh, Joel Osteen in "Blessed in the Darkness." Here we go. Discover the sinner in you. Well, God bless you. It's always a joy to come into your homes. And if you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. These are the finest people in all of Houston, Texas, right here at Lakewood. We'll make you feel right at home. But thank you for tuning in. And thank you again for coming out today. And I'd like to start with something funny. And I heard about this minister. He bought a new horse. He trained it to respond to praise the Lord, meaning giddy up, and hallelujah, meaning woe. Every time he said, praise the Lord, the horse took off running. When he said, whoa, it would quickly stop. One day he was out riding. The horse got spooked and took off straight toward the cliff, running full speed. In the panic, he couldn't remember what he trained the horse to respond to. 
He said, bless God, glory, amen. Nothing happened. At the last second, he shouted, hallelujah. The horse came to a screeching halt just inches before the edge of the cliff. He breathed a sigh of relief and said, praise the Lord. Hold up your Bible. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. No, you won't. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about blessed in the dark places. Blessed in the dark places. Okay. We all go through situations in life that we don't understand. Company was downsizing and we got laid off. A friend walked out of a relationship. Now we're having to start all over. Yeah, notice here, these are the things he's saying shouldn't be happening to you if you're standing in front of your mirror and saying, I am the head and not the tail. I am blessed. I am strong. I am healthy. I am, you know, know, these things shouldn't be happening to the people there at Lakewood, should they? Because they're all being taught to stand in front of their uh, mirrors and say faithful filled affirmations from God's word that are, you know, supposed to make their lives wonderful. Well, then how could they possibly be having negative things like this happen to them? Well, <laughs> he, I don't think he's going to get to the how, but he's going to try to frame it up for them so that they understand, oh, this is this. Well, this is to be expected, apparently, even though this is what they're affirming in order to avoid, you know, we continue. A young lady I met last week. She had been pregnant for five months with her first child. She was so excited, already decorated the baby's room, but something went wrong and she had a miscarriage. She looked like she was numb, no expression, a dark place. In 1981, my family thought we'd be celebrating the Christmas. Yeah, a dark place? Try mourning, grieving on a grand scale. I mean, you talk to women who've been through this, I mean... There's hardly anything more difficult to get through than this. Holidays, looking forward to fun and fellowship. Instead, we learned that my mother was diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. It's a very somber Christmas. All of us, at some time, will go through dark places. A loss, a sickness. Now, now, wait a second. Wasn't your mother the wife of the, the famous Osteen, who was also the Word of Faith teacher, who taught prosperity and divine health? How is it possible that your mother died of cancer? Hmm? Yeah, do you get the feeling this theology doesn't actually work? Sickness, a divorce, a child that broke your heart. It's easy to get discouraged, give up on your dreams, and just settle there. But God, you get discouraged and give up on your dreams? So that's the big, the, the big whatever you do. Oh, man, when you're going through a dark place, whatever you do, man, don't give up on your dreams. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, have you never really felt grief? Giving up on your dreams is like the least of your worries. Sometimes grief is so severe and so hard that the temptation is not to give up on your dreams, but to give up on God altogether and chuck your faith. That's the reality of mourning and grieving. It's that difficult. uses the dark places. They are all a part of his divine plan. Think of it like a seed. A seed cannot germinate in the light. 
Mm-hmm. So think of it like a seed. Notice he's not going to a biblical text. You just think about, you just look out there in nature, and there's this thing called a seed, you know? And, uh, you know, those seeds, they can't germinate as long as there's light on them. Nope, 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 nope. They got to be in the dark. See? See, that's what's happening to you. It, your, your, your dreams and your life and everything about, it's just a seed. It's germinating in the darkness. Mushrooms grow in the darkness too, but there's also a, <clears throat> a thing that they grow in that not worth mentioning here on the radio. As long as the seed stays up on a shelf, it will never become what it was created to be. You have to plant the seed in the soil, in the dark place, so that what's on the inside will come to life. In the same way, there are seeds in you, dreams. In the same way, there's seeds in me. Mm -hmm. Really. Which Bible text tells me about these seeds that are inside of me? I'd I'd like to see that text, please. Goals, talent, potential Uh that will only come to life in a dark place. Oh, yeah. See, I so if you have a really big dream, yeah, well, you've probably got to go through a really, really, really dark place for that big dream to germinate. Because everybody knows that, like Terry Savelle Foy, you know, said that, you know, you know, Satan's out there trying to keep you from achieving your dreams and visions, you know. Uh-huh. And if you study the scripture, every person that did something significant went through one of these dark places. Moses made a mistake and killed a man. Yeah, that's not a mistake. That was a sin. Yeah, murdering somebody. He spent 40 years on the backside of the desert. Alone, feeling like he had blown it. But in that dark place, something was happening on the inside. Mm. It was getting him prepared. He was developing patience, humility, confidence. Without the dark place, he would have never held up the rod and parted the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just like Moses then. So, you know, God's got some huge thing for me to do, just like he had for Moses to do, really. And you're saying that kind of in a one-size-fits-all. So basically, you're preaching to millions of potential Moseses out there. What is the plural of Moses? Is it Mosai? The dark place is a prerequisite to stepping into the fullness of your destiny. Ah, yeah, right. Yeah, uh yeah. Sounds biblical, though, doesn't it? Um, But it's not. (laughs) Yeah, the story of Moses, you didn't really even tell it. And you've turned it into a prescription, some kind of a pattern. Ah, so I'm supposed to read myself. Oh, just like Moses went through, oh, I'm going to go through that. <gasps> I'm going through a dark place right now. That means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to part the Red Sea. Esther was an orphan, a young lady that had lost both of her parents. She felt alone, forgotten, a dark place. Mm-hmm. Where does it say she felt alone and forgotten? I mean, I'm pretty sure orphans go through that, but... I don't remember that being kind of like the major things teased out in the text. You know what I'm saying? But God used her to help save the people of Israel. Mm. Elijah was so depressed, he wanted to die. Yes, well, that's true. I mean, yeah. A dark place. Yeah. Yet he's one of the heroes of faith. Yeah, how many great things did Elijah do after that, by the way? Because, you see, see, that was after the um, prophet's Baal incident. On Mount Carmel, and then he flees to Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. You know, hangs out in a cave for a little bit, and God says, "What are you doing here?" And then you know, he says he wants to die, and then God says, "All right, go anoint this guy king, and go anoint Eli- Elisha as the, uh, you know, as your successor." Kind of thing. I mean, pretty much Elijah's assignments were pretty much done by that point. You know what I mean? 
Or David, he had an affair with a married woman, had her husband killed. For one year, he was broken, sick, guilty, yet he's called a man after God's own heart. God doesn't send the difficulties. <laughs> for one whole year, yeah. I, David, for like the rest of his life, you know, experienced temporal consequences sent from God regarding that particular uh, uh, twin sin. You know what I mean? <sighs> but he will use anything that comes into our lives. In those dark places is where we really grow. That's where our character is developed. We learn to trust, to persevere. Our spiritual muscles are getting stronger. In the dark places, you pray more. You draw closer to God. You get quiet and listen to what he's saying. In those dark places, you reevaluate your priorities. You spend time with your family. You have a new appreciation for what God has given you. A friend of mine was told that he was going to lose his vision. Now, did he actually teach any biblical passage? Nope. Didn't actually preach even one. Just made reference to them and kind of gave him uh, his uh, word of faith gloss over them. You know what I'm saying? Hmm, he's not really exegeting now, is he? But he's going to exegete a story from his friend's life. Well, let's listen to that. Maybe his uh, friend is actually one of the biblical characters. He had some kind of infection, and he had a surgery and wasn't supposed to see after the operation. But it wasn't what the doctors expected, and they were able to correct it. His vision is perfectly clear. Now, every morning when he wakes up, he spends the first 15 minutes staring at the sunrise, staring at the flowers, Staring at his children. You may not realize it, but in the dark places, you're being blessed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yet another example of uh, what we would say, teaching for shameful gain what you ought not to teach. Are we hearing God's word rightly handled? No. Um, yeah. And what's the assumption here? Oh, yeah, you are so super de duper important that you're going to go through dark places so that you can achieve your dream destiny. Yeah, the Bible doesn't say this. And what he's doing isn't actually exegeting any biblical text. He's schnookering these people and basically um, <clears throat> filling their heads with utter nonsense rather than with sound biblical theology rightly taught and exegeted from God's word using sound biblical hermeneutics. This is an example of narcissism, if you would. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a couple of really good sermons. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Rich Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> Oh! <laughs> 
are listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Good sermons. Boy, do we need them. Fighting for the Faith, we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, we got three of them. Uh, they come to us first from uh, uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska. Brent Kuhlman will be listening to his sermon entitled, The Last Day When? It's on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Then we'll switch gears and we'll head down to Capistrano Beach, California to Faith Lutheran Church and listen to Pastor Jeremy Rohde preach on the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, and his sermon entitled, Bet Your Life. Then, for good measures, same text on the parable of the talents, we'll go to Calvary Lutheran Church out there in Elgin, Illinois, and listen to Pastor Mark Bestuel. Uh, as he preaches on that same text. And the goal here, it's, you know, we're getting to the end of the church here, end of the, uh, and we're focusing on the end of the world. I want you to hear what good law gospel preaching sounds like on the parable of the talents in particular. And I also wanted to play Brent Kuhlman because I always consider his sermons to be just barn burners. But uh, he's, you know, keying in on kind of the same thing I keyed in on, you know, who knows when the, 
uh, end of the world is. Anyone who says that they know, well, they're not exactly telling you the truth. So let me go ahead and back off on the music here. And what I'll do is I will go ahead and read the text uh, for uh, Pastor Kuhlman's sermon. It, his Again, his sermon is entitled, The Last Day When? And it's based upon 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 11, which reads, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anyone anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying uh, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith, love for a helmet, and hope the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. Here is Pastor Brent Kuhlman and his sermon entitled, The Last Day When? Here we go. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text is indicated is from the epistle. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, yes, Jesus will return on the last day. That is certain and that is sure. Jesus himself promised it in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. At his ascension, the angels told the disciples in Acts 1 that this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Yes, there will be a last day. And on that day, Jesus will be revealed in glory. He will judge the living and the dead. He will separate the sheep from the goats. When will this take place? Can I give you the exact day, month, or year? I can't. Because Jesus doesn't say. Instead, he says categorically in Matthew 24, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You and I cannot calculate the last day and when it will take place. And so the blessed apostle tells us in the text, now brethren, about dates and times, we do not need to write to you in other words, regarding dates and times, we're not going there. Don't even try it. Don't even ask us about it. But that day will come. And it will come, as the text says, like a thief in the night. Just as Jesus himself preached in Matthew 24. What's the point about thief in the night business? The point is this, that you cannot calculate when the last day will come. And so, brothers and sisters, it's time to knock off the guessing win. And it's high time. And I warn you about this. It is high time for all of us to stop listening to the false preachers on the TV and the radio, the blogosphere, and in books who predict when the last day will take place. I'm serious about this. 
any preacher or Bible teacher that says that the last day will take place at such and such a date is a false preacher, a false teacher. He or she is a wolf in sheep's clothing. So stop listening to these people and start listening to the Lord Jesus and his blessed apostle who writes in today's text. He says, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When everyone least expects his coming in glory, that's when it will take place. And the last day when it comes, oh, it will hit the world hard. Like you women who've experienced it. Like when the agonizing labor pains hit you. And you know the delivery is at hand. So too, the last day. The text says, while people are saying peace and safety. In other words, everything's okay, everything's well, nothing to worry about. We've got everything under control. The text then says, destruction will come upon them suddenly. Suddenly. All of a sudden, with surprising suddenness, God's inescapable wrath will come upon all unbelievers. Unbeliever. They didn't want to believe in Jesus as the Savior. They refused to receive holy baptism. They purposely closed their ears to the preaching of the gospel. And they lived as if Good Friday and Easter Sunday were nothing. They were too busy living only for the now. Too caught up in the idolatry of themselves. Oh, they heard a preacher. But they considered him to be a false one. And the preacher is their own voice. They lie to themselves. Oh, that preacher, that coolman, he's an idiot. He's an idiot. I'm not going to listen to him. I'll do whatever I want. Who does this coolman think he is warning me about my unbelief? I'll show him. I'll stay away and I'll worship myself. And I'll call myself the most religious person that the world has ever known. After all, I've built up a pretty good life for myself and I've accomplished quite a bit. And so unbelievers who ignore our Lord's warnings about the last day, will we'll ignore it to their eternal detriment, to their eternal damnation. And therefore the judgment will be, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away to eternal punishment. In Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he says about this punishment, for the unbeliever. He says, this will happen. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. Both our Lord and his apostles speak of hell and damnation as a real thing. So too, be warned. There is a hell. And there is damnation. But one of the most popular, trendy, jeans and polo shirt, megachurch pastors in the United States, his name is Rob Bell. He pastors Mars Hill Bible Church in Michigan. You know what he teaches? He teaches that there is no such thing as hell. 
or eternal damnation. In fact, he wrote a best-selling book about it. It's best-selling. It's called Love Wins. Rob Bell is a false teacher. He is a false preacher. Do not listen to him or other mega-church wannabe pastors and warn others about these wolves in sheep's clothing. For those who refuse to believe in Jesus and receive his gifts of salvation, for those who would insist on forgiving themselves and being their own God, the last day judgment will be damningly hellacious. Paul says in the text today, he says, they will not escape. Now what about you? Well, you have observed from the text that the Lord's last day coming does not call for calculating curiosity, but rather vigilance and sobriety for nothing less than your salvation, your eternal life, with or without Christ, is at stake too. And so what about you who are died for and baptized Christians? Listen to Paul's words, his exhortation, for they are based on the Lord's words in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Again, the words in today's text are, You are all sons of light and your sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So, he says, Paul says, Let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you living as sons of the light, sons of the day, or are you asleep? That is to say, have you become spiritually insensitive? Are you bored with God's word? Are you apathetic to the preaching of Christ's death and resurrection for you and for your salvation? Would you rather be doing something else than receiving the most holy body and blood of Jesus with his promise of forgiveness? Do you live outside of your baptism by doing dark deeds? Are you dipping your toes in the pool of the dark side? Are you gratifying your sinful nature at every turn? Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll let Paul say it. He spells out the dark deeds in Romans 13. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, and jealousy. Penn State, anyone? Lindsay Lohan, anyone? Kim Kardashian, anyone? Before Jesus reveals himself in glory on the last day to judge the living and the dead, there is still time. There is still time for all of us to repent. And this is precisely Paul's point when he says, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Brothers and sisters, there is time before it is too late for you to repent, to daily turn from your sin, from gratifying your sinful flesh 24-7, 365, and daily turn to Jesus, who died and rose from the grave for your salvation. You for whom Jesus died and to whom he has given his spirit then are to battle against your sin that so stubbornly hangs around your neck. And it is a battle to the death 
your sin, my sin that I commit, is daily to be put to death. Our old Adams and our old Eves are to be drowned and die with all of our sin and evil desires. And so Jesus has given you armor and a helmet in this serious struggle. The breastplate of, breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation's hope. Faith and love. The hope of salvation. The faith is faith in Jesus. And faith is the new man, the new woman, the new creation. Wrought by Christ's word. He has won your salvation on the cross by taking all of your sin in his body and answering for all of it. And until you die and are buried six feet under, or if you're alive on the last day, you are to use Jesus, the hope of your salvation, against your sin. You do that by hearing and believing his word of forgiveness. And for that, he's given you his name in baptism, and he continually gives you his body and blood in the sacrament. And when you go to the Lord's Supper, I don't know if you realize this, folks, but when you go to the Lord's Supper, you do stand before the white judgment seat throne of Christ. The sacrament of the altar is judgment day ahead of time. It is judgment day in miniature. For at the altar, Jesus comes. He comes with all his angels, the archangels, and all the company of heaven, and he renders a judgment. And what is his judgment? It's this. You're forgiven. I died for you. Proof. Eat and drink my body and blood. It is the foretaste of the heavenly feast to come. Finally, in the text, God said, Paul says, God did not appoint us to wrath. He's not angry with you. He loves you for Christ's sake. You'll only receive his wrath if you insist on it. You know, like the guy in the parable today who buried his talent and sadly believed that his master is unjust. God did not appoint us to wrath, but rather to receive salvation through Jesus Christ our Savior. And so come to the sacrament. There, with repentant joy, we receive the salvation accomplished for us by the all-availing sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross. Remember, that's the prayer of thanksgiving right before we take communion. And so it's no wonder then that Paul says, encourage one another and build each other up. Encourage your fellow members of Trinity, your family, your friends, to come and receive Christ's gifts. For here is where the edification is needed, both now and forever. So that, as the text says, whether we are awake or asleep, when Jesus returns in glory on the last day, we may live together with him in the everlasting light and light of heaven. In the name of Jesus. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Next sermon, the first of two sermons on the parable of the talents. Again, goal here, I want you to hear what good law gospel preaching is so that you can rightly understand what's going on in the parable of the talents. It's not about dunking a basketball. It's not about money management. That's not what this is about. And the text is Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, which reads, For it, the kingdom of God, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents, for everyone who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that worthless servant into outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, here is Pastor Jeremy Rohde in his sermon on this on this text entitled, Bet Your Life. Here we go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry, and we are nearing the end of the church year. The theme of Jesus' sermons is judgment. The final day when he, our Lord and Master, will return to settle accounts. As is usually the case, we've misnamed this parable of Jesus, calling it the parable of the talents. A talent being a literal and very large sum of money. But if we focus too much on the talents, we'll conclude that God's judgment is dependent upon our efforts. If we work hard with what He gives us and and we turn a profit, then we'll be saved. But if we slack off and make nothing, then we'll be damned. Why is this a bad way to hear Jesus' parable? He who works will be saved. He who does not work will be damned. It sounds kind of fair. So why is it wrong? Because God says in the letter to the Romans, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You see, with God, even the man who does not work is saved. With God, even the ungodly man is justified. So powerful is the death of Jesus. It atones for every kind of slacking off and for every kind of ungodliness. The sinner who has no hope but Jesus, the sinner who believes only in Jesus, God reckons the sinner's faith as righteousness. 
You simply believe in Jesus and God credits you with keeping the entire law. It's as if you never sinned at all. There is indeed no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Focusing then on the talents and ignoring the rest of the parable is like focusing on the tip of the thermometer and ignoring the fact that there's a sick person there. The talents are only important because they indicate something far deeper that's going on. The parable isn't so much about the talents as it is about the people, about the relationship between the master and his servants. Who is the master? How does Jesus portray him? If he's nothing else, he is a lavish giver. Just to give you some scope, some frame of reference, a denarius is a full day's wage. A silver talent is roughly 7,300 days wages. A gold talent would be roughly equivalent to 600 years worth of wages. And this master is doling out five talents, two and one. It's not so much the talents themselves that matter. It's that the master is a shockingly lavish giver. Just like our God. As the Catechism puts it, He gives you your body and your soul, your eyes, your ears, and all your members, your reason, and all your senses. In your greatest need, He sends His own beloved Son to lay down His life for you. And even today, He continues to call you by the Gospel, enlighten you with His gifts, sanctify you, and keep you in the one true faith. In other words, everything that you have and are come from Him. Who are the first two servants in Jesus' parable? They're stewards. They've been entrusted with what their master has given them. One has received five talents and the other two. Some receive more from the Lord and others receive less. But he is gracious to all. These two servants have faith in their master. He's given them large sums, to say the least. Astronomically large sums. What if they lost it all? What would he say when he returns? Would he throw them in prison? Would he put them to death? They have faith that he is merciful. Lavish giving and great mercy go hand in hand. He is a great giver. He must also be greatly merciful. So they risk it. Not just some of it. All of it. Every last thing that they have been given, they risk. 
And so, in fact, they bet their very lives on their belief that their master is merciful. What if it all goes wrong? He will have mercy on us. Who then is the other servant, the third servant? He's also a steward, and he's also been given a lavish sum, one full talent. But unlike the other servants, this man has no faith in his master. He doesn't believe that his master is merciful. And he doesn't make the connection that lavish giving and lavish mercy go hand in hand. Rather, he perceives this lavish gift and this stewardship as a terrible liability. What if I lose it all? What if it's stolen? What would the master say? So instead of risking it in trade, this servant buries his master's money in the ground. What's his rationale? Later he will say, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you don't even sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. What's the difference between this last servant and the first two? This last servant has no faith in his master's mercy. So he risks nothing, bets nothing. He simply tries to keep what his master has given him. It's like when Jesus says, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And so we see this very thing. In the end, this servant loses his talent. The master takes back his talent from the worthless servant and gives it to another. Unlike this worthless servant, as the master calls him, the first two servants bet it all. Everything they were given, everything they had, even their own lives, they bet it all on the Master's mercy. It's like when Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. And so we see this very thing. In the end, these servants not only keep what they've been given, they not only get to keep the profits they've made, they also get much more and they learn that their master is even more merciful, even more lavishly giving than they ever imagined. So, dear Christians, we have Jesus' sermons. We have the church here reminding us that the day of judgment isn't a fiction. It's real. And we ought to consider that it's coming soon. If you believe that your God and Master is unmerciful, even unjustly harsh, reaping where He does not sow, then you'll take all that He has given you and you'll do absolutely nothing with it. You'll bury it in earthly pursuits and earthly gains. You'll try desperately to keep it and in the end it will be taken away from you. 
But if you believe that your God and Master is gracious and merciful, then risk. Take all that He has given you and risk it. Trade it. Use it to multiply His profits and gains. Risk it all. Not at Vegas, but to multiply His profits and gains. Bet it all. In fact, bet your very life on your Master's mercy. And in the end, even more will be added to what you already have. On the day of judgment, you will see that you've made the safest possible bet. As your Lord says to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. But how can you be sure that this is what the master will say to you? Because the master you meet on the day of judgment is the same master you meet here at this altar today. And what does he say? Take, eat, take, drink, my body, my blood for you, for the forgiveness of your sin. Maybe there are sins from your past, sometimes half forgotten, but brought up again by a name, a picture, a memory. Maybe you've thought and lived in ways that are godless, even plainly pagan, ignoring God, despising His Word, doing as you please, hating others, sexual immorality inside and outside of marriage, thievery, exploiting others, lying, never content, always wanting more, always wanting what you don't have. Maybe if you honestly assessed your life, you've taken your whole talent, all that God has given you, and you've done little more than bury it in dirt and darkness and filth of the earth. If that's you, come now this morning to this table and hear your master say, for you. He knows his sheep by name. He knows you by name. For you, he says, for the forgiveness of all your sins. With these words, our Lord himself absolves you. All is forgiven. All is divinely forgotten. Whether he is standing here at this altar today or sitting on heaven's throne on the last day. It's the same Jesus. The one who so loves you, he gave his own life for you. The one who has your name engraved by nails in the palms of his hands. Unimaginable giver, unimaginable mercy. So it is that we go to communion as if we were going to the judgment. So that we go to the judgment 
as if going to communion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You see what I mean? You see what I mean? Good law gospel preaching isn't going to turn this into a parable about works. At least not works that save you. You get what I'm saying. All right, last but not least, uh, uh, Pastor Mark Bestial from Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois, and his sermon on this exact same text. Here we go. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, last Sunday's parable of the wise, foolish, or of the five wise virgins who kept their lamps burning and the five foolish who let their lamps go out, that parable called us to keep watch and take care to preserve our faith as we eagerly await Christ's return. Today, Jesus follows up with a parable that calls us not just to preserve our faith, but to exercise and increase it. To understand this parable rightly, we must first address and defend against our love of money and earthly possessions, which entice us to assume that this parable calls for good stewardship and earthly investment of material things. I just heard that interpretation this morning on my way to church. As if Jesus, during Holy Week and the days before the cross, speaking of the last day, is actually worried whether or not we will be good stewards with our material possessions. Such an idolatrous view of this text is undercut by four brief points. One, Jesus' previous parable was not about us keeping literal lamps of oil burning. If we are not to take that literally, his follow-up parable on talents or money ought not be interpreted literally. Two, Jesus begins this parable the same way he began the last. It, the kingdom of heaven, will be like. Remember in all those parables of Matthew 13 we considered earlier in the year, Jesus repeatedly said the kingdom of heaven is like, present tense. Here he specifically says the kingdom of heaven will be like. If Jesus is looking to the future, to the last day, his mind is on our entrance to paradise. And stewardship of earthly possessions is not what keeps us watchful. Three, the parable concludes with the master rewarding the servants with eternity, with the full riches of heaven. Such reward is not based on handling of earthly investments, but on faith, joy, and the grace of God. Four, we have the warning of Zephaniah in our Old Testament reading. The people of his day grew complacent toward the coming day of the Lord. Why? Because they at least had their possessions. And they convinced themselves the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. And so they rested in their possessions. And how did the Lord respond through the prophet? With a threat of taking away those possessions. He said, their goods will be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. In fact, the verses immediately after the Old Testament reading conclude God's threat with these words, Neither their silver nor gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. 
Now, how can we turn from that to Jesus' parable and think he's telling us to be good stewards of silver and gold or any other earthly things? Instead, we learn from Lawrence of Rome, an early church martyr, who, when ordered by the Roman governor to hand over all the church's treasure, gathered together all the faithful. And he said, here is the treasure of the church. The treasure of the church is the faith, produced by and trusting in God's grace. Your treasured inheritance is not silver and gold, but your faith clings to the holy precious blood and the innocent suffering and death of Jesus Christ. So now we may read this parable rightly. A master who is going away for a time, just as Jesus has ascended on high to visibly return on the day of the Lord, that master entrusted to his servants his property. And again, what is the property of God? Is it silver and gold, or is it grace and the mysterious means of grace and, and the faith that is exercised and encouraged by that? Now the text says that the master gave one servant five, Another two, another one. And that would sort of seem unfair, but perhaps the next phrase is helpful. Each according to his ability. This does not literally mean that some of us have a greater ability to apprehend the things of God than others. Rather, it means that Jesus knows how we look at ourselves, how we look at one another, and we wonder why it seems that some are able to have such a strong faith while I struggle so mightily in the faith. Isn't that how we often think? It seems that every Christian around us has an easier time than we do. It seems that one Christian never must wrestle with the faith, simply finds great joy in clinging to his great faith and whistles his way through life. Others, it seems, have the greatest struggle even to hold on to the little mustard seed-sized faith that they have. Some of us, at least on the outside, seem to have drowned the old Adam completely already. Others are in a battle royale with the old Adam every day. Nevertheless, we ought not concern ourselves with the appearance of measures that others have because Jesus' point is to say that those who went and exercised whatever they were given received a double portion. Whatever they were given in the beginning, it was the same 100% increase. A double portion for the one who had five, now had ten. A double portion for the one who had two, now had four. This might remind you of Job, who after all his struggles was blessed by God with a double portion. It might remind you, especially you confirmands, of the perfection of Eden, in which God looked at all he had made and it was doubly good. Tov, tov. So also for the faithful. They exercise the faith, they put it into practice and use it, resulting in a double portion. Now, when the English says in our text that they made five or two more, it does not mean that they made it for the master's sake. Rather, the Greek says they cardinoed it. They cardinoed, they profited and benefited double. You see, God does not have us exercise the faith so that he might benefit. He has us exercise the faith that we would benefit. 
even as Jesus explains at the end of the parable, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. Notice that? He, the servant, will have an abundance. Jesus doesn't say he will give back to his master in abundance. How often we sinners think that Jesus has given us this great gift of faith, but now expects us to use it for his benefit. That when he calls us to be baptized and again absolved, we do so out of polite reverence to honor and benefit him. When he calls us to hear his word, we do so out of polite reverence and for his benefit. When he calls us to gather at his altar and partake of the supper, we convince ourselves that we do so as a polite remembrance and for his benefit. That when he calls us to confess the faith to our neighbor, we do so simply out of polite reverence and for God's benefit. But that's not what Jesus here says. He says that the servant benefits. The servant, Cardinos, and his portion of the faith is doubled. That is good news. That is gospel. Now there's one servant who does nothing with the faith. Last week we heard about those who just assumed they'd always have faith. Today the servant is actually antagonistic toward the faith he's been given. He rejects it. He buries it in the ground. And eventually the master returns. And the faithful servants joyfully come forward in the abundance of faith. They are not afraid of his coming, but they joyfully come forward. And notice something stunning about Jesus' storytelling here. He says that the master settles accounts, but he never says that the faithful servants hand over the double portion. The faithful come and say, you gave me this much, and I benefited twice as much. But they never say, here, I give you back twice what you expected of me. The faith that God gives us is not because He expects expects it returned with interest. He gives it to us that we might grow. That we might benefit from it. And so He delights that we have indeed benefited from His gift when we joyfully confess our increase. And He says, well done, good and faithful servant. I will set you over even more. Enter into eternity. Notice, nowhere is the Master rewarding us for repaying Him, as if His motives the whole time were actually self-serving. Rather, in seeing our joy toward His gifts now multiplied in our heart, He's giving us even more. The promised inheritance to which faith clings. And He ushers the two faithful into eternity. Now we get to the faithless servant. His desire is only to pay back. He never trusted this master to actually have the servant's interest at heart. And so the servant simply desires to repay what the master has given. The servant even says, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Really? Is that the truth of the master? Is the master not he who in another parable scatters and sows seed generously over rocky ground and along the path and in fertile soil, carelessly sowing everywhere, hoping that all might benefit? And yet the servant had no faith in the master's goodness. 
saw him as a hard, legalistic man. How many religions out there teach the Lord in that way? They think that the Lord, or they teach you that the Lord simply wants to be paid back. And so this servant had merely buried the gift of faith. He in no way exercised it as long as he knew he could pay it back. Now friends, if this sounds strikingly similar to our own lives and or the lives of those we know Jesus intends it to, the sinful nature does not trust Jesus to be gracious. It assumes that the life of baptismal faith is of no benefit, that God's main purpose in baptizing you is a self-serving interest, and so we bury the faith. We see no use for it in our daily lives. We spend our days trying to pay it back. We sinfully reinterpret all of God's goodness to be heavy rules about our necks, so that baptism is our act of dedication. Absolution is earned by our confession. The Holy Supper is our required meal of fidelity. How pleased God should be that we celebrate it so often, we think. In all these ways, our sinful nature finds itself to be no different than the faithless servant. We bury the faith and don't desire to exercise it or strengthen it because we assume this interest simply is owed to the Master. And we reason, if I'm not going to gain anything from it, I'll do the least bit necessary to give him back what he first gave me. But the Master retorts, if you think I'm hard-hearted... At least give the money to the bankers, that they may try to invest it. What does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus is saying, if you're not going to exercise your faith, at least entrust it to the care of one who will work on it for you. If you're not willing to pray during the week, or read the word during the week, or live your life dependent on my promises, God says, at least Drag yourself to a Bible class and let the, let the pastor work on it for you. At least let the pastor invest in your faith. If you won't have daily devotions with your children, if you won't teach them the catechism at home and pray with them and teach them how to live in the fear and trust of God, at least bring them to Sunday school in confirmation and let the pastor and the teachers work on them. At least then, the Lord says, I will receive these baptized children back with some minimal interest to their faith. Of course, the Lord's purpose is not to encourage minimalism, but to say that those who refuse even that ought be outright rejected. In fact, at the parable's end, the one who began with one talent, with a little bit of faith, ended up with nothing. Just as last week, the foolish virgins began with a little bit and ended up with nothing. To be minimalist in the faith, to say, what's the least I need to do to pay God back, is no faith at all. And the faithless will end up with nothing. Jesus himself says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, where the foolish virgins will be found too. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, deep regret at the Lord's coming, that his blunt word, bluntly delivered, was not heeded. St. Paul says in our epistle reading, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. 
Friends, we have no reason to be surprised and unprepared when the day of the Lord comes. Rather, we ought to encourage one another with the joyous truth that the Master has obtained salvation for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he has given it to us in the form of a great treasure. His grace bestowed on us to be clung to by faith, exercising itself to not only be preserved, but to be strengthened by God's grace. So encourage one another with the love of Christ. Encourage one another to make use of his word and sacrament. The similarity of these last two weeks' parables warrants that I quote last week's sermon. Remember, I said, friends, you have the gospel. You have a God who does not constantly require of you, you must do this, you must do that, save yourself, improve your righteousness, prove your perfection. Rather, he who died on the cross to atone for your sins and purchase the faith he has given you in baptism also desires to replenish your oil of faith with his gifts. And I will add today to that quote, he desires you to exercise and increase your treasure of faith by his gifts of word and his sacrament. And he simply says, trust me. Learn from me. Take these gifts that I freely give you and benefit from them. Depend on them. Cling to them. Trust them. Define your life by them. And do not let them go. For double portion awaits you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You see the difference? You see what I'm saying? That's what good law gospel preaching on this text sounds like. And Mark Bestial is a careful exegete. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, the name there at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.